turn to Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> Why do you think people revisit our national parks? Most of us have been to, like, Yosemite, if we live here, right? But we can't take it all in in one trip, can we? And each time you go, you go, whoa. I realized this place was great. I didn't realize it was this great. Maybe, maybe you spend time in Tuolumne, another time in the valley, and, and another time you go to Glacier Point, and, and maybe you backpack. And each time, you gain a greater perspective. Uh, Bob and Lisa have led trips into the Grand Canyon. Many of us have stood on the rim. It, it, you get a totally different perspective if you're rafting down the Grand Canyon for weeks on end. And, and again, you, you walk away realizing, wow, I knew this place was great, but I didn't realize it was this great. Today we're going to read about the most extraordinary reunion ever between two close friends. The Apostle John, of all the apostles, understood and wrote about the fact that Jesus is God. But after this encounter with Jesus, I'm sure that John might have said to himself, I knew he was great, but I didn't realize Jesus was this great. We can't take in all who Jesus is. Now, the, let, let's first talk to the one who is greater than we can possibly imagine. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to the Apostle John, uh, to us, to, um, thank you for going out of your way to, to show us who you are and that you continually, you're continually doing that around the world. Lord, might we take away more of who you really are and I'll cooperate with you as you're changing our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the story behind the events described in this unforgettable Sunday in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, uh, actually began some 60 years earlier on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a short time after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, most of their, the disciples uh, had been fishermen prior to their call by Jesus. Now, Peter, it doesn't say this anywhere in John 21. That's what I'm paraphrasing. Peter, um, even though Jesus had met with him privately, he was still pretty discouraged about his great failure about his three denials of Jesus. And, and he decided it was time to go fishing, time to go back to what he used to do. And Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, they all said, sure, we'll go with you. Uh, so they went out one night, and it was just like old times. They enjoyed the sound of the lake at night, the feel of casting out the nets and dragging them in, and the anticipation of a catch. But that night, they caught nothing just like another day several years earlier. At daybreak, they headed towards shore. Um, Peter was probably even more discouraged than when he had started out. And then a man on the beach called to him, children, you don't have any fish, do you? 
Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. And they pulled the net in, and they were unable to haul all the fish. And they knew this man was Jesus. He had done the same thing three years earlier when he had called them to be his disciples. And they discovered after they enjoyed the breakfast that Jesus had prepared for them that he was renewing their call to serve him that morning. They were still his disciples, but serving him was going to look very different after he had ascended in, in many, many ways. Jesus gently but firmly confronted Peter's discouragement, his feeling that he could no longer serve Jesus after his denials. He gave him another calling. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. Then he shocked Peter by telling him that he too would die for proclaiming the gospel. Now, I don't know how we would react if we heard that news from, from Jesus, but Peter immediately asked about John. I'm not sure why he did that, but he did. What was going to happen to him? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Now, the rumor quickly developed that the apostle John wasn't going to die. But John later wrote, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? The apostle John was kept alive until this unforgettable Sunday occurred when Jesus would reveal himself to him in glory. Uh, please follow along in Revelation 1, beginning of verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow particular, partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In verse 9, John begins by describing himself as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Uh, John was a key leader in the first century church. Uh, he was the last living apostle. Ray Steadman believes this book was written uh, in about 94 to 96 AD, which means that John was in his 80s at this time. He was walking proof of the gospel. Um, and he was on Patmos, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Remember, the Roman government wanted to stifle him, to curtail his influence. Uh, remember the tradition that John had miraculously survived an execution attempt. And the emperor, Domitian at the time, wanted to get him out of the way because he was just him walking around. People believed in Jesus when they saw him. Now, notice the apostle's attitude here. Uh, he could easily have been bitter and complaining, not only because he was old, right? The older we get, kind of the grumpier we get, uh, but because he was basically a prisoner on this island. He was banished from the rest of the world. He could have been saying, oh, it's just, it's that emperor Domitian is just, oh, if we had different leaders. And, you know, he, he just could have been grousing and complaining. Instead, he saw being on this island as what he had to patiently endure because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. By this time, all other apostles, including the apostle Paul, had faced death for proclaiming the good news. Just as Jesus had predicted on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Peter had been crucified, although by tradition he insisted on being crucified upside down because he didn't feel it would be right for him to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. Now, the word martyr, each of those, the apostles were martyrs. It, it means something different than what it has come to mean today. The, word, the Greek word for martyr means to be a witness, such as you would be in a court, to give accurate testimony. Each of the apostles gave accurate testimony as to the life and work of Jesus Christ and, and the good news. And they suffered for it. You see, a martyr didn't go out and make others suffer. They didn't blow themselves up. They, they were harmless. And they were the ones who suffered. In verse 10, John says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Um, the first day of the week was quickly set aside by the early church as since it was the day that Jesus was raised, it was the day to gather together in a special way as we are doing today. Now, just as the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians 5, in the spirit doesn't mean it, it, that, that it's some unusual occurrence. He's saying that what I saw, what happened to me was directed by the Holy Spirit. It was not a product of my own imagination. He hears a voice behind him like the sound of a trumpet. Now, we don't know whether John recognized Jesus' voice or not, but it certainly was different. 
A trumpet grabs our attention and, and summons people together. Now, this is the first of many comparisons and symbols that John uses to describe Jesus and, and events that he will see later on in the book because words quickly fail to describe who he saw. Verse 11, uh, he hears his, <laughs> he hears his new calling from Jesus. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Even though he's 80 years old and isolated and away from the rest of the world, in Jesus' view, John was never on the shelf. His call was just renewed. And that's a great thing for each of us to consider. What does Jesus want you to do? What does he want me to do at the particular stage of life that we're at? We, what we do may change. God's calling may, may change and adjust over time. But here, here's a pretty extreme example. A guy in his 80s receiving a brand new call from Jesus. There's no such thing as retirement from service to the Lord. And it's important that we listen to Jesus and, and respond to what he wants us to do. Now, the seven churches were all located in what is now modern Turkey. They're, they're mentioned in, in geographical order. It's almost like a map is drawn that a courier could follow if traveling on foot and taking this letter to each of the churches. And you'll learn much more this summer about Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. In verse 12, John turns to see who's speaking to him. I'm sure he had a pretty good idea. Uh, he notices first seven lampstands. And it was clear at this point that he was seeing a vision from the Holy Spirit. Now, these lampstands provide a really good example for us on how to understand the signs and images and symbols that are presented in the book of Revelation. The first way is to wait for the explanation as it's coming in verse 20. Jesus himself explains what these things mean. Uh, many of the images and symbols are ones that prophets in the Old Testament also used. Because remember, uh, Revelation is like the hub of the wheel. So many prophecies throughout Scripture find their fulfillment in the events in the last days. And the meaning becomes clear then when you consider the referent, when you go back into Scripture and look at how it was used elsewhere. The Bible most often explains itself. We should all beware of anyone who assigns wild, disconnected meanings to symbols in this book. Meanings that have no connection at all to Scripture itself. Verse 13, then John saw Jesus in the middle of these golden Lampstands. Each element of Jesus' outward appearance reveals something about his character, something about his person. Um, they, they're also presented often symbolically. For instance, it's doubtful Jesus had an actual, actual broadsword coming out of his mouth. But it, that symbol actually 
very accurately communicates the power of Jesus' words. Each of these elements are mentioned in the letters that follow because Jesus realized each church needed to remember something about who he is. And we do too. First, John notices Jesus clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet. Most people wore shorter garments because they had to walk or run or move around quickly. A long robe was the symbol of royalty or a priest. He was also girded across his chest with a golden sash. A sash across the chest was a mark of authority. And Jesus is our high priest and our king. He's the one who lives to intercede for us, to advocate for us before the Father. And he is ruler of all. His head and hair were white like wool, like snow, not, not white like ours. Turns from age, but glowing with the visible glory of God. Now, God's glory, to me, shows there's no end to God's purity, to his holiness, to his goodness. We will never get to the bottom of those traits. And they just can't be contained. It's who he is. His eyes are like a flame of fire. In John's gospel, he'd mentioned that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We see Jesus' truth emphasized here. He knows the truth. The writer of Hebrews said, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Old Testament speaks much about the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. There is no fabrication. There's no smoke and mirrors that can stand up before the gaze of Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus' feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. A victorious king had his enemies under his feet. Literally, sometimes literally, but figuratively, that would mean they would bow at the feet of the victorious king in submission. Sometimes a ruler or a warrior would actually put his feet on the neck of his enemies, as Joshua once did. The Messiah is praised in Psalm 110, not only as the high priest, but as the victorious king. Psalm 110 begins, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And bronze is a metal in the Bible that's associated with judgment. So Jesus is the victorious king of kings who will judge righteously over all his enemies. John already communicated to us about the power of Jesus' voice. And he does again. His voice was like the sound of many waters. This is something that we can relate to because just like the sound of many waterfalls that we might visit in the next weeks, 
Uh, and, and with the snow melt coming up this week, sounds like it's a good time uh, to do that. The, the waterfalls are going to be simply astounding. But that sound speaks of the power of the water going over those rocks. So the sound of Jesus' voice here speaks about the fact that this is God himself who's speaking to us. It's his voice that dictated each of the letters that follow. And just like we, we don't ignore the sound of a waterfall, we don't ignore the power of that water, we shouldn't take lightly the voice of Jesus as he speaks to us personally. Now, I just want to read Psalm 29. This is, just a, this is just the psalm to just take in. This psalm writer was so struck with the sound of God's voice. He saw it uh, like mirrored in, in, in creation, but a picture of who God is. And so just listen to these verses from Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is on the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. That's the power of God's word. And that's how he's speaking to us in this, in this, in this book Verse 16, it says, Jesus held seven stars in his right hand. Again, wait, wait till verse 20, right? And a two-edged sword came out of his mouth. Again, God, the power of God's word to cut through anything in our life, any barrier, any obstacle, any experience, and get to the heart of the matter is what's being discussed. And again, the writer of Hebrews describes the power of of God's word in our lives. Each of us can relate. I'm sure that we have had God use his word in a powerful way like this with each one of us. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intention of the heart. And Jesus' face was like the sun that would be shining when we get out here at noon. It was the sun shining at full strength. God's glory, again, is expressed in the presence of Jesus. It's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? Let's take just a second, just a second to, to think about what we just saw. To think about who Jesus is. Lord, you are amazing and overwhelming and approachable. Thank you. Thank you. Now, 
In verse 17, even though John, the apostle John, had been Jesus' best friend, he fell at his feet like a dead man. And Jesus, as he is right now, is so much greater than we can possibly imagine. And each of us <clears throat> would have the same reaction. The prophet Daniel had the same reaction when he saw Jesus in glory. He said, no strength was left in me. This is in Daniel 10. For my natural color turned to deathly pallor and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. We would do the same thing. He, Jesus in glory is overwhelming, but he doesn't remain unapproachable. He's not unapproachable. And boy, that's one of the, one of the gazillion differences between the God of Islam and Jesus. He's approachable, and he's knowable. Jesus placed his right hand on John. Here he is, flat on his face. Jesus places, places his hand on him and identifies who he is. Don't be afraid, he tells John. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He begins by saying, don't be afraid. John had been a wise guy. You might say that'd be easy for you to say, right? Um, Jesus has opened the way into his presence for each of us through his death, through his shed blood. We're not only forgiven, we're invited. We're invited into his presence. That's simply amazing. Into his presence without fear. I'm the first and the last. This was an Old Testament name for God who spans time, just like we saw last week, and is not limited by this. By using this name, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Messiah. Isaiah said, I am the first and the last, and there is no God beside me. Jesus is also the living one. <laughs> He's not only alive, and, and this word just, it, it's, it's hard to communicate all that he's, he's saying there. He's not only alive from the dead, he's the source of life itself. In the most amazing contrast ever, Jesus said, I was dead, I became dead. John saw Jesus crucified and dismissing his spirit with his own eyes. The source of life itself became dead for our sakes. But that only lasted three days. And then the news is so good, he says, I am living forever to the ages of ages. There's no end. And Jesus is alive and he is where we find life. And if you feel that spiritually your life has reached a dead end, you're looking for Jesus. He is life itself. And he gives eternal life to everyone who trusts in him. And Jesus' death and resurrection has, has given him the keys to death and Hades. Hades was a term familiar to the Greeks and Romans. It meant the unseen realm or where the dead disappear to. Jesus not only has authority over death and uh, over those who have died, he will unlock death and raise from the dead all who have trusted him all who believed in him. 
And in verse 19, John hears the specifics of his new assignment. Write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This is why Jesus appeared to him. This is why John had been uh, kept alive, so that uh, Jesus would, would show him all these things and that John would write them down. And so all believers afterward, including us, would know what Jesus revealed to him. And what Jesus presents here is an outline of the book of Revelation. The things you've seen is Jesus in glory. His appearance is like a stamp of authenticity on the entire book. The things which are are the messages to the churches that we'll be studying this summer. And then the things which will take place afterwards is from chapter 4 to 22, the whole sweep of future history from the tribulation before Jesus returns to his return into eternity. In verse 20, Jesus wants to, he wants us to listen and understand. And so he explains what these symbols mean. And remember, the Bible most often explains itself. He says seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And these angels are addressed in each of the letters that we're about to study. Angels have a vital but unseen role uh, and often, often unappreciated role in our daily lives. And that's the way it's supposed to be because they are spiritual servants. The seven lampstands are the churches themselves. And, and he refers to these lampstands in many of the letters that we're going to study. And they appear to represent the spiritual state of the church, how the life of Jesus is being lived out in that particular congregation. And some, the lamps are burning brightly, and in others, they're in danger of sputtering out or even being removed. And if there's a lampstand that represents the life of Jesus before the Lord, and has Hilltop's name on it. We want to pray that that one is burning brightly. And we can assure that by listening and acting. In fact, there is a, a one point to kind of take away this morning. It's in your handout. Um, if we can boil this all down, it's Jesus is risen and glorified and coming soon. Amen is right. That is so important to realize. As, as the world descends into, into greater and greater chaos, it's important to remember who is beyond history, behind history, and is going to be returning. He has spoken to us through this book, the book of Revelation, and throughout his word. He has spoken to us and think of the power of Jesus' words. And we're wise to listen to him as if he was standing in front of us. Think of all the preparation we would go to if we, you know, were going to meet some dignitary or the president or some royalty. Well, Jesus has spoken to us. And it's wise for us to listen. Now, just like John, we maybe I'm... I'm just speaking for myself. I think what I'm speaking for all of us. We 
can't realize how great Jesus really is. Just, just as we might stand in awe in Yosemite Valley this summer or on the rim of the Grand Canyon or in some other national park, let's now stand in awe of Jesus. Let's take in who he is. And in each of these letters we're going to study, uh, Jesus reminded them of one of these traits or a couple of these traits. And we need that reminder. We need to know that he is much greater than we can possibly imagine. So we have problems. We have issues. He's greater than them. I need to remember that. I don't know whether your life, you know, my life kind of goes like this, you know, like it, it, it gets busy and busier. This is one of the busier times, okay? And it's easy to just kind of get caught up in that. And I need to realize Jesus is greater, greater than this, whatever I'm facing. And we need to remember he's the son of man. He's God, but he's also man. That means he can identify with anything that we're going through. We need to remember that. We need to remember he's our priest and our high priest and king. He stands ready to intercede and advocate for us and to act on our behalf. We need to remember he's the ultimate authority. All unjust situations will be judged rightly by him someday. And we, we need to advocate to help others at his direction, but we leave the outcome in his hands. And we want to, to work as he works out, cooperate with him as he works out his glorious character in us. That's really what life is all about now. That's why we're still here and vertical and breathing is so that his life can be seen through us. We want to cooperate individually and as a church. Think of that lamp burning brightly. And boy, do we need his gaze of truth in our life. I sure do. Because sometimes we can construct smoke and mirrors. We can set them up. Sometimes we can fool ourselves. We can either become too full of ourselves or we can beat ourselves up like the Apostle Peter did. We need Jesus' gaze of truth to remind us who we are in him and what his calling is on our life. And we need to listen. We need to listen and to act. And that's the point of this, uh, this reminder this summer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe. Thank you for revealing yourself to the Apostle John, for renewing his calling, for that being an example to us. None of us are on the shelf ever. Thank you for, again, reminding us that you are everything we need. And you reach out your hand and you touch us and say, don't be afraid. We, uh, 
We're going to close this morning by worshiping you. We have to. We just have to. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.